Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. This is Scott Alves Barton. And I'll be your guest host for this episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. The time we're in warrants talking to a wide range of people who are African-American and professionals in food and food writing. I firmly believe that my voice is useful and has been useful even before this happened. Maybe all black people will get a better meal if they haven't figured out what I look like. When we as African-Americans say we learned something from our grandmother, all of a sudden we have to define it. That needs to be looked at and it needs to change. That's not a livable wage. Bringing the farmer to the table to have an understanding of how we serve what they grew. The only fruit that they've ever had, they couldn't tell you what it tasted like outside of a can. The watering down of culture was unacceptable. It's made so many parts of the restaurant industry less invisible. I was the only person of color doing that type of editing. How much of our life centered around the evening meal? I had a quadruple whammy because I got COVID. Black chefs have a duty to make sure we're highlighting our food ways appropriately. Those are the voices of Scott Alves Barton, your guest host for this episode, as well as a dozen of the leading voices in restaurants, food writing, and agriculture in the United States today. They are all our guests on this episode and the one that follows it of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs, although this isn't really Andrew Talks to Chefs. These two episodes, today's and the one that follows it, are actually Scott Talks to Chefs and food writers and people in agriculture. And our guest host, curator, booker, producer for these two shows is my friend Scott Alves Barton. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Andrew. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I think the time we're in warrants talking to a wide range of people who are African-American and professionals in food and food writing. Thank you very much for letting me do this. Oh, I appreciate you doing it. And Scott, you are a gentleman with a list of credentials, <laughs> associations, affiliations that I, I don't quite know how to properly summarized. So if you don't mind, I'd love to just ask you to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't know where to begin to try to define myself. I was an underage pot washer in Connecticut and country clubs and became a chef after college for about 25 or 30 years, as well as a culinary consultant, which I do minimally now. I transitioned into academia and got a PhD in food studies and now function more as an educator scholar and author on the African diaspora and particularly on issues of food and faith and women's knowledge. 
That's the simple way I can just define myself. Thank you for that. I also should tell our listeners, as with yourself, a lot of our guests on today's show, if not all our guests, have very compelling backgrounds, very interesting work they're all currently doing. We're going to intentionally, because we do have 12 guests across these four segments, uh, keep the introductions on air on the brief side. But if people visit the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com, or if they listen on Apple Podcasts where links are functional, we will link through to the best online source for more information, both about you, Scott, and about all our guests. So anyone listening who would like to read more about you or read more about our guests can do that. But we will be keeping the introductions uh, to each of them brief on air, just in the interest of time. You know, I wanted to say one thing that was important to me in organizing this. I really wanted it to be intergenerational conversations. I think that too often we speak from our demographic to our demographic, and we forget that we are part of a continuum. And I think I get to say this because I'm as much a listener as anyone else on these two episodes. I think that's one of the more compelling aspects of it. So um, as far as I'm concerned, mission accomplished, and I hope people enjoy listening to all of these. So just to set it up, Scott, and then I'm going to turn turn the whole thing over to you. Uh, you know, and this goes back now, gosh, I think a few months when I think neither of us thought it would take us quite this long to put the show together. But, you know, we're busy guys. <laughs> we had guests who were busy. It took a long time to get every each component of this done. But in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, uh, I don't even remember at this point. I guess it was technically in the spring. I almost said summer, but technically it was in the spring. There was a real moment happening in which a lot of people who had not previously, I think, been, I guess, fully engaged or even aware of some of the issues faced by Black Americans had become sort of newly alive to what it's like, or at least trying to understand as much as one can, who isn't black themselves, what the black experience is like in this country. And this is something that in, in many profound ways touches people in the, in, the, in the restaurant industry, which is kind of our core focus on this show. I thought, and I, I, I hasten to point out, and I'll link to some of these episodes on the episode page for this show, you know, this has always been a show that that strives for diversity, uh, but it's also essentially a show that does biographical interviews. And I thought this was a moment where listeners of this show who maybe don't listen as a matter of course or routine to more issue-oriented shows might be able to hear conversations along these lines on this show that maybe they wouldn't hear, even though a lot of people have been doing programming like this. And to be honest, as you know, as a white guy, although I, I, I do my best, I didn't feel particularly qualified to, to moderate these conversations. Uh, you know, I think I have blind spots. Uh, I think there are things that I'm by no means an, obviously an expert in. Um, and I also thought that my mere presence might inhibit some of the conversations. So with that in mind, I reached out to you. You and I have kind of seen each other around over the years, uh, Back when I was at Heritage, you, we met there. We saw each other at the New School last year. We were on Facebook together. Um, and I reached out to you. I kind of told you what I had in mind. And, and you just jumped in uh, more than I ever could have hoped or imagined and really put your all into this. So with that, I think I'd just to like to turn it over to you, let you set up the specials and let you set up the first conversation. Thank you, Andrew. You know, for me, just as a preamble 
This is nothing new, at least within the black community or the now popular phrase BIPOC community. And whether we think about the Scottsboro Boys or Emmett Till or Ida B. Wells' important work um, in the early 20th century, um, I think the key here, though, is in a short amount of time, uh, a new spate of killings, often but not all, engineered by state-sponsored violence um, that echo Eleanor Bumpers and Michael Stewart in New York City, as well as Trayvon Martin. But from a few days after my father's birthday, we lost Ahmaud Arbery running in the Low Country. Uh, in March, we lost on the 13th uh, Brianna Taylor, and there's no charges still. On Memorial Day weekend, uh, we lost... George Floyd very publicly. And the other one I think of in relevant to our conversation is David McAtee on June 1st. And particularly in the last two, there was a food connection. David McAtee was a barbecue chef in Louisville. And George Floyd had gone to a, a bodega food store takeaway shop and uh, that has a, a hot buffet, hot table buffet. And so there's a way that even more closely it comes into the world of people who work with and around food, be they black or white. And I think it behooves us to pay attention in this moment across difference. I want to introduce the people that I will speak to over this series. I have four sets of people. First, Chef Kimberly Brock Brown and Chef Todd Richards. Kim is from Charleston area and Todd in Atlanta. Two chef and agriculturalist, Chef Johnny Rhodes from Houston, and former Texan, or I guess always Texan, Adrian Lipscomb, maybe popular to many for her 40 acres and the mule project, and she's based in Wisconsin. Four chefs, Omar Tate, recently relocated from New York to Philly, has a new project to make a food hall and education center. Ashley Shanti Martin, the chef of Benny on Eagle, uh, along with John Fleer, the chef owner. Anisha Hargrave, who also recently relocated to the Bay Area from New York, who's a chef and consultant. And uh, grand chef Joe Randall, who many people know, <coughs> created Taste of Heritage, has been a, a run a cooking school and made produce books uh, among uh, many of his exploits over many years out of Savannah. And lastly, uh, Ellen Sweets, a journalist and food journalist, now based in Austin. Jamila Robinson, who is the executive editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer's food section. Doctors Cynthia Greenlee, historian and food writer, and uh, the kind of the icon of food history from the African diaspora, Dr. Jessica B. Harris. So to begin, here's a conversation with four chefs, Omar Tate, Ashley Shanti Martin, Anisha Hargrave, and Joe Randall. I don't want to ignore this moment. I want to uh, seize the day, but I also don't want to be tokenized or be the flavor of the month and be a tool or a pawn for whether it's private or corporate entities to say they're doing the right thing. And I'm curious if any of you have had similar experiences 
where you feel that if you're not necessarily being used, it may not be the best relationship somebody's trying to cultivate. They may not be at their core trying to really do right by black and brown people or BIPOC, as you might say. I, I totally resonate with that. Go Omar. I wasn't really working in restaurants and, and Honeysuckle was such a, I'm not going to call it a small concept, but the concept was not as nationally recognized as it is now. It's almost as if people were like mining for black voices as soon as like guilt hit. Being asked to speak regularly or write you know, or use my pen more regularly than ever before is, is certainly a certainly a thing. And it, it brings to me like in question, like the validity of, of, of the ask, what the intent is behind the ask. I firmly, firmly believe that my voice is useful um, and has been useful even before this happened and will continue to be useful beyond this moment on the other side of the tunnel, whatever that's going to look like. But it can feel gross sometimes in that way. This is Chef Ashley Shanti piggybacking what Omar was discussing. Uh, a few seconds ago. I um, think that we as Black chefs have quite a duty to make sure we're highlighting uh, our food ways appropriately and also a pretty big responsibility in what avenues we choose to do that. I think that's something I'm certainly learning, especially um, over these last few months in political climate that we're experiencing right now, is trying to ensure that my message and the stories of this area um, and the food that we're cooking, uh, that those stories aren't being watered down. And um, I, I'm constantly making those attempts to ensure that uh, the avenues I choose to, to highlight those matters, that they are going to uplift uh, our community in some way, and that there's going to come some sort of enlightenment from it, and that I'm not just being tokenized. I think for me, one of the things that has stood out as a red flag is kind of these these media opportunities that have such a sense of urgency surrounding them, um, especially as a chef with us all trying to rebuild and just reformulate the way that we do business. I find it concerning um, when there's media opportunities that present themselves to me and people want to talk right now or tomorrow. I find that concerning because I think right now, um, with our voices being so important, I mean, it being so important to amplify them. I think that we have to be so thoughtful in our communication and our partnerships with people. I just want to make sure that all, all the stories that we're telling are thought-provoking and useful and meaningful. I want to ask you, but also ask Joe after you, let me put you both in conversation, because Joe's been doing this for 50 years. How do we present our food? Do we gussy it up? I did a show this week on the Cokes in Black, where both Jennifer Booker and I cooked kind of from our French training and our black culture. And there that can be a problem. And I'm just curious how you navigate, whether you're looking broadly at the diaspora or just specifically Appalachia and trying to stay true, as you just said. The way that I try to remain true to the cuisine that I cook is I, I try to ensure that everything that I cook does tell a story and that, that it is meaningful. I don't love that box that we as Black professionals in the food industry are often put in. I've heard the narrative that, you know, Appalachian cooking can be seen as um, peasant food or poverty food. And I, I don't particularly prefer those descriptors. I think that a lot of the things that we do here are some of the same things that they're doing 
at some of the best restaurants in the world, you know, foraging and using local ingredients and, and maintaining those relationships with our local farmers. The way that we cook is just very expressive of ourselves. So, you know, just in the same way that the dish that I cooked tonight might be inspired by my late great grandmother, I might cook a dish tomorrow that was inspired by a book I read about Japan. So I, I think that the food that I cook is very expressive. It might not always be what people expect when I'm calling my cuisine black food, but it, it is an extension of who I am. Um, and my blackness is a very big part of who I am. Now, Joe, you've been doing this for decades. How have you worked through it, rationalized it, taught it, cooked it? How do you define? Well, I, I look at what I consider the authenticity of the food. I remember when there was no such thing as American regional cooking. It was just good food and bad food, most of the good food from the South, because people in the South weren't afraid to season it. You know, fried chicken in Boston was a whole lot different than fried chicken made in Alabama. The chef that I trained under, Robert W. Lee, was from Atlanta. So in the 30s and 40s, he ran a hotel with an entire African-American crew. Our banquets, you know, we did pot roast, we did prime rib, we did a variety of choices of things, but it was about using fresh ingredients, applying classical techniques, and making the food taste good. It's uh, uh, no different for any chef. I don't care if he's Austrian, French, Italian, German, or African-American. His heritage is a part of who he is and how he cooks. It's nothing for Jacques Pepin to say he learned something from his mother or grandmother. And when he cooks it, that's wonderful French food. When we as African-Americans say we learned something from our grandmother, all of a sudden we have to define it. Uh, Edna Lewis never once in her entire life ever said she cooked soul food because she didn't. She cooked Southern food because that's where she grew up and she cooked the food that she learned how to cook on the farm in Virginia using the fresh ingredients that were available. And so I think we get caught up with word playing and sometimes uh, we are so busy trying to make ourselves separate from everybody else, that uh, when we pigeonhole ourselves, then we have to wear that. You know, I love Patrick with all my heart, but I think I have Patrick on a recording saying one time that he he cooked different than some African-Americans. Okay, he cooked more than collard greens and fried chicken and black-eyed peas. Well, we know Patrick cooked different. But I've eaten his collard greens, his black eyed peas, and his fried chicken. He knew how to do that too. But that wasn't what they were paying him to do on the job. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because he always encouraged us to cook from our heritage. And there were aspects of his heritage that came into the cuisine, but they were subtle. You know, he was very much in love with French cooking. But if he ever cooked for his family and used the kitchen, let's say, before going to a picnic, you saw a different cooking, which, you know, something you said resonates to me in a conversation I've had with several people about this Janice face, two-faced quality of pulling 
people like the iconic images of Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben and Rastus off the boxes, because there's an argument that could be made that as much as they're pejorative or have been made to be pejorative, they also symbolically say their skill in the kitchen, blacks have a talent. I don't want to go so far that is the way people say we come out of the womb playing basketball and making music and cooking. It's a learned skill for many that we've applied ourselves to. But I'm curious what you think about this tension of the icon and the racist imagery. I think we're dealing with a couple of different things that kind of get merged together in the 30s and uh, 20s. Clearly, Madison Avenue saw the African-American, the big, busty uh, African-American woman, Miss Green, as the authority on food in the kitchen. And she was the person that was respected for having knowledge and skill in the kitchen. Uh, Uncle Remus, Uncle Ben, uh, these black faces on those boxes, uh, while I'll agree sometimes they didn't use the best light because of the time and climate to project the authenticity of it or the uh, the the understanding that they were the people that had the skill and the talent. Uh, it was clear that they you know in my cooking school here in Savannah, I've had several people say to me, I haven't eaten anything like this since that little black lady that used to cook for my grandmother. And so they know who the authority was. Now, they may not have wanted them to, you know, you know, uh, get too much attention because uh, they don't mind us getting attention as long as they can control it. But if you uh, tend to generate something and uh, they figure you're going to get the big head and you, how do they say you get out of your place? As long as they can keep you in your place, it's fine for you to get a little recognition. What I'm hearing in your words is you speaking directly to Omar. Omar's art, for what I see, is not just a chef, but a poet and a writer. And he, as many of us do, looks wide and far for influence and inspiration, as Ashley herself just said. And I think that Omar, I don't know if you have a thought about that, but the way that you try to mine your heritage and, and broad heritage within the diaspora um, seems to try to make them more visible. Yes, yes, absolutely agree. I really, I really appreciate Chef Joe's insight on, on all of this. I think more importantly, what I do with, with the food and the way that I display food and talk about food is that all of those things, all of those feelings are true. You know, um, this feeling stereotype is true, but also understanding that these Im the imagery of these people um, they are real people and they did have real talent. And um, if, if we want to reimagine ourselves in a, in a period of time where if I was approached with an opportunity to be on the cover of a cereal box back in 1930, people were making hard decisions. <laughs> you know, Amos and Andy was a hard decision uh, and they portrayed those characters. You know, I'm pretty sure those, those, those ants, the solutions for them weren't, weren't simple um, and they faced ridicule. 
even in their deaths, they face ridicule, you know? So we're still facing hard decisions. We're still, in terms of like pigeonholing ourselves and deciding whether we're going to do this or do that, say we're making black food or call ourselves black chefs or um, call ourselves Southern chefs or differentiate ourselves or make, make, make ourselves distinct even within the diaspora, we are still, you know, in, 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 <laughs> in, in a, a tango with identity always, um, which is not our fault. It's, it's this country's fault. And all of that can be, should be, and is being expressed in our cooking. Anisha, this brings me back to you because it made me think of that concept that I believe is now failed called Loco that Daniel Patterson and Roy Choi had done in California to try to make a fast casual concept that was affordable and fairly healthful for working class and working poor. Have you ever been approached to do something along those lines and or branding products the way we've seen these products that have just been pulled or their the branded imagery has been pulled and how do you, how would you manage it if you haven't or if you have how do you um since you're the one who really is got the beat on corporate food and maybe branded products how would you approach that if you were given that job? Maybe you've had it. It's so interesting. Like the corporate food world is a dressed up version of what I think Ashley and Omar and Chef Joe have alluded to in their in their world and, and what they deal with every day. And yeah, 100%. I've been almost being pushed into taking part in unsavory ways of positioning food products that are representative of communities of color. And in my, most often in my experience, that was almost like watering down and in some cases making extreme light of the cultural significance of things, of dishes and and recipes and names and the accuracy of those things um, as it relates to the Brown community and specifically uh, the Mexican um, culture. And, you know, it's problematic. And and it caused me on many occasions to take pause and um, just think more about the brands that I was representing and the companies that I was working for, and if those places were right for for me. It's hard to be aware and understand your history and allow for those uh, transgressions to take place under your watch, at least for me it is. And so oftentimes I found myself to be the voice around the table that had a point of view that could not be expressed by uh, some of my colleagues because they did not understand the issues with their points of view and with the, in most cases, the marketing campaigns that they were dreaming up and so excited about that being the only Black woman at the table, the only person of color at the table, I was able to see things and and see uh, that most of those images were unacceptable. Most of the watering down of culture was unacceptable, at least on my watch, and uh, making a point to not take part in those things and oppose them vocally. What I hear and what you just said, Anisha, is this question of 
I've been in those rooms. I've done corporate consulting. When I've done the work that mimics your work, I'm often in that room. And sometimes they look to me to ask my perspective, but sometimes they forget that I'm there and they're in, in love with a false positive concept. And I'm curious how you negotiate it because you seem like you've, you've been there from what you just said. For myself, I try to be present to the responsibility of being in those rooms because we are often not. And we're often a singular voice in those rooms uh, up against uh, a multitude of voices. I try really hard to make sure that when I see or hear or have a spidey sense of an injustice that's happening, being careful not to overblow and be uh, overly sensitive to things. But I want to point out what I know to be true for people of color in my experience, based on my lived experiences, uh, so that folks who may not be privy to those cultural happenings can get closer to an understanding of those things as much as they can. And sometimes that just means being the voice of reason and opposition um, or just saying, hey, guys, um, I think we need to give this some more thought and bring some other folks to the table to have a, a greater level of understanding. And sometimes it's not well received. Like a hundred percent. I have literally been pulled to the side and told I was being combative and uh, aggressive and all those trigger words uh, when, you know, I am being professional, but I'm giving an opinion that you don't support and is in conflict with yours. And so it's a problem. And in other cases, on a more positive side, it's definitely uh, also been well received taken uh, into account and been influential in what I believe to be keeping uh, brands from making critical missteps that don't go away. You know, they we live in the age of the internet where everything is always in existence. So, you know, something that you promoted or said or sold in the past is not always in the past. And so be on the right side of things. And, and I'm proud that brands that I've supported and, you know, been in a place of influence with uh, have taken note, but also understand that that won't always be the case. And it definitely hasn't always been the case. What I hear is a clear uh, emphasis that you all make on the interaction with other people. And I just, uh, what I hear is they are not, because there's so few of us in the boardroom, on committees, they uh, uh, they just can't imagine that they're not right. Uh, they assume that when they say something, it's correct. Uh, because, first of all, they're not thinking of the same people as they begin to market that you're thinking of. They, they're thinking of looking in the mirror and who, if I'm marketing this to me, what would I think about it? And so this has happened... You know, many times through the years, you know, you you find yourself in a situation where uh, uh, they they uh, just uh, uh, just can't fathom that you don't you know that you might have an understanding greater than theirs. What both of you are making me think of two things. Just to give props to Joe, when I was 
actively cooking and actively a chef in restaurants. And you could correct me if I say it wrong, but Taste of Heritage that he took around the country and how I first met him showed me that professionally there were peers that I could have or mentors I could have, even though I did work for Patrick Clark for several years and, and had the privilege of working under a black chef. But there was, you know, less than one handful of people that I was easily able to find or know who were black in cooking and professional. And so that was really good because I could bounce something off somebody else or look at what they were doing. And it makes me think about Omar and Ashley, because on the one hand, I'm thinking about the honeysuckle pop ups as they existed in New York. And Ashley, your daily life when the kitchen is functioning and not in a, you know, a jigsaw puzzle of COVID that on the one hand you have the pulpit and people come to the temple to pray and eat, so to speak. But on the other hand, I remember when I cooked food that was broadly diasporic at Voyage in the West Village, some people, particularly when I did Southern cooking, that's not Southern. Like it was not your South. You have to look at the South as regional and they would want to take me to task. And then I didn't have a Southern accent. So who was I? And so I'm curious, Ashley, and then Omar, how you, in your world that's not corporate per se, respond or get pushback about your choices and your uh, the veracity of your decisions or the honesty in, of your influence and choices that you make on the plate? I, I'm glad we're on this topic. So for me here at Benion Eagle, I, I am thankful that I, I don't receive any sort of pushback when it comes to our menu or um, any sort of creative avenues that I feel strongly about. I, I have complete control uh, in that aspect. Um, and, I, and for that, I'm, I'm grateful. But one, one pretty large struggle for me right now, I feel like I am very new to this aspect of the industry. I mean, I'm, I've been cooking my entire life, but, you know, just having these major media outlets want to hear my voice is something that is pretty new. Um, and the struggle for me is um, just taking on this project because I for so long have wanted a seat at a table that I have never had a seat at. And I I guess I've, I've been surprised by what a seat at the table looks like um, and just kind of highlighting what Anisha said, you know, at a seat at the table might include false images and, and microaggressions and insults. And it, it has been disappointing to me to see what, um, what that has been. Um, and also just kind of highlights the importance of having those black leaders in place. Um, and just like Joe talked about, there are so few of us on boards and on the committees. Um, and for me, uh, that seat at the table has looked a lot like performance activism and, and white saviorhood. Um, and, and that's something that I feel like really needs to change. And I think that's why um, black mentorship is so important within our industry. Um, and, and just a, a large level of accountability, I think that that does not exist right now. Go ahead, Joe. When I was writing, a taste of heritage and new African-American cuisine. It was so funny. I lost a editor. And when, when the new editor came, uh, you know, we handed them a an edited manuscript. Tony Tipton Martin and I together, when we got finished with that book, they didn't have to do nothing but print it. 
You know, Tony was qualified to read from front cover to back cover. And when she got finished with it, all they had to do was go to press. But this new editor, and I understand if you get a job and don't do nothing, then you can have a little, you have difficulty justifying why you took the money. But she literally told me, well, that's not African-American. She going to tell me what was African-American food and what wasn't. And I said, well, darling, I don't know how much of an African-American you are, but I've been one all my life. And the book, as it is, or it won't come out at all. And so it did come out just as it was. And, you know, she could either take credit for it or just uh, to, to keep her mouth shut. But the point is they really do feel that they know more about what we know about us than we do. And if we allow them to be the authority on us, they'll move with it without a thought. Because they really do believe that they are the authority on everything in America. I've had, uh, you know, I used to get just wonderful comments. You know, uh, 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 we eat this, we eat that. How is that African-American? Or my mama cooked that. I asked her, who taught your mama how to cook it? You know, so it's, uh, they forget that we were in the kitchen cooking because it was a job relegated to us. We didn't wake up and decide we wanted to go be cooks. It was one of those doors that they allowed us to walk through because nobody else really wanted to do that job. And it was long hours, hard work, and the working conditions weren't the best. It was hot and sweaty. You know, if you imagine 100 degrees outside, probably 140 inside when with the stoves on. Testify. Uh, I told you a story time that that uh, uh, restaurant institution magazine did an article, New Breed of American Chefs. And it was uh, like 21 chefs in the article. And the youngest was like 18. She had never been to culinary school, never worked under any chef from any notoriety. She just liked to cook. The oldest was in his 70s. But there was not one African-American included in the article. And the first thing they said, they couldn't find none. They didn't know none. But when I asked Nancy Ross Ryan, who wrote the article, where did she get her information from? She said the Culinary Institute of America. She got recommendations from the Culinary Institute of America and the American Culinary Federation. So it was obviously who they were promoting. And so that's one of the things that we uh, had difficulty understanding that marketing and promotion is something you have to be savvy about. So you need a, an up-to-date photograph with you and some food. You also need one with you in a uniform. You need a ready bio because sometimes they're not going to take the time to send a photographer. But it doesn't mean the story can't come out right if you're ready. And if you're prepared, you've done your homework. So it just, those things just weren't taught to young African-American chefs. And so that's why we made some attempt to do that in the 80s and 90s. But white folks don't have a problem with exclusion as long as they're not the ones being excluded. 
when when Nancy Ryan and and uh, the people at Restaurant Institution Magazine found out, I wrote them a letter. They thanked me for the general reprimand. I didn't let them off the hook. I sent them a list of 50 African-American chefs that I knew around the country and suggested that should they decide to revisit the thing about chefs in America, I was sure that these chefs would participate. And what they did was come out with an article called Black Chefs in America. And it was a wonderful article. It spoke highly of some notable chefs around the country. But I got comments from white chefs that I knew all over the country. They didn't understand why there weren't any white chefs in the article. But when the first article came out and there weren't any blacks in it, that was normal for them. In light of what we're talking, we've been talking about Omar, to me, the view I see is the media likes you. And that's a great quality to have in relation to what has been just been said. But I'm curious in relation to Ashley and Anisha and Joe's statements, if you found yourself as you transitioned into Honeysuckle in New York and, and other places and now Philly, that you were also in a position that you had to pull back or question why you were being asked to do this or def define or defend what you were doing because it wasn't quote unquote authentic enough or they wanted you for an, an ulterior motive. What I hear in those conversations is mostly that uh, they were being challenged, um, continue to be challenged. Um, and something that I wasn't interested in with Honeysuckle was was being challenged. And um, I don't really talk about this a lot, I guess. Maybe I should talk about it more. But the reason why I write the poetry um, that goes along with my menu under the same titles as the menu descriptions is so that when my guests come and eat and I tell them that this food is black, I'm, I'm, they're already positioned in a way to accept it. The, the conversation begins with where I started it and not where they assume the conversation to be placed. You know, I have the fortune of working independently. I, I don't have anyone to answer to and I don't own a restaurant. And so like the, the risk that I'm taking in, in being as like matter of fact about my, my, my position with food um, isn't much of a risk at all other than the fact that maybe I won't be cooking tomorrow, you know, but I can go work at another place. Um, and so that, that in, in itself, um, it lends itself to a particular kind of um, freedom, a kind of freedom that I feel like, you know, uh, black people are searching for in their hearts in many facets of, of their lives. And so like I found to me in this way, Honeysuckle, has, I, I found a way to um, un unbind myself or untether myself to to uh, any corporate chain or even small independent restaurant chain, um, because I get I get to express myself exactly how I see it to be necessary. Um, one particular instance where someone did challenge me in food was was actually like really enjoyable, because you know um, I I try to treat Honeysuckle as this entity that um, that is positioned in a way that makes it makes black culture just as equitable um, and equal to any other ethnicity, but especially within whiteness and in white spaces and uh, anywhere, right? So uh, I made a dish of just a, a, a mixture of like collard greens and mustard greens and 
um, I think it was turnip greens, maybe one more, and it was stewed down. Um, and then I, I made a, a mushroom demi, and like, I think it was like a spice blend that I put on top of it. Uh, but when I put it on a plate, it was literally just it was just greens with all these with all this stuff in it, and um, they were sourced from um, the greens were, were, were sourced from a black farmer. Uh, the mushrooms were foraged, and all these and the spice blends. I like um, dehydrated the vegetables myself and turned them into a paprika and a spice blend to 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 go over these greens. But one guest um, responded by saying, "I can't believe that this dish was a dish." Um, much less a side, and it was part of a, a whole meal that was that was one hundred and fifty dollars for the whole meal, like eight courses or something like that. Um, and it was perfect because you know when you go to a place like Blue Hill and Dan Barber gives you one carrot on a stick and charges eight hundred dollars and says, "Oh, this came from the land, and we have this farm out here," and tells this whole story about this one carrot that may or may not be good, you know, um, and people were spending eight hundred dollars for it. They're not questioning him, you know what I mean. They're not. They're not challenging him, and so I was able to come back to this person and tell this and tell this person that, um, because that person thought that they were challenging me, and she was white. Um, however, it was actually her frame of mind being challenged, um, and so she was able to like see that and reconsider reconsider her opinion. Um, now, granted, I don't think that I'm very fortunate and I'm not naive enough, and I don't take take it for granted that I I and my work exist in this very, very special time. I don't even think that five years ago, um, Honeysuckle would be what it, what it is now five years ago, um, much less 10 years ago, much less in the 90s. It, it, might, it may, have been happen, may have been happening in like a basement, <laughs> you know what I mean, in the 90s, but I don't think it would be being written about in the way that it is, in the way that it is now. Um, especially when, when Scott, you tell a story about you know um, you working in a kitchen where people are questioning every, everything you put on a plate because you don't have a particular accent and you don't cook a particular way and you're talking about regionality and stuff like that. Um, if you can't even be that nuanced in the '90s, I, I can I can only imagine that that honeysuckle would just be like murdered upon entry. Well, you know, you you hit on it, Elmar, because you know I used to do stuff like you're doing with honeysuckle in the '80s and '90s after work uh, with artists usually, but, and they know it and I know it, but it, there was no place for it to be acknowledged in a wider scope. There's a thread that keeps coming up, I just wanna name it, that um, coalition building, collaboration, cooperative engagement seems to be something everybody's resonating with. Would anybody like to have a parting statement? In this conversation that we're having, I don't want us to 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 uh, lose sight of as a chef, a professional chef, the the responsibility that we have first and foremost is to prepare food properly, serve it proper conditions. Cold food, cold hot food, hot. One of the first things you learn coming into this business. I understand that being a chef today uh, is a little different than when I started out. I've met several young people who have the title chef who don't know what a P&L is. They never control labor costs. 
they've never actually run a restaurant and commanded a brigade, but they have the title chef. And, and I'm not opposed to that, but I want them to qualify, make sure that we are qualifying ourselves so that the food can't be questioned. It's not enough for us to put a hat on and call ourselves a chef and then put out food doesn't represent the knowledge and expertise that we should have to, to, to wear that title. So I encourage everybody to, to be as authentic as they can about the food, take pride in the uniform that they wear, take pride in the food that they prepare. And it's not always about the money because uh, what we do as chefs is prepare something with our hand to please other people. And again, this is the hospitality and food and beverage industry. This is service industry. If you don't want to be a part of service, you really shouldn't be in this industry. You know, if you don't enjoy making other people happy, if it's only about you feeling good, then it's not going to work out so good for you because you want people to tell you how good you are and how good things were. And be honest, if it's not good, they're not going to tell you it's good just because you've been on television. They might not tell you to your face what it is, but they'll tell everybody they see. I was somewhere and had dinner. And then this other thing about perceived value. You can charge $150 for dinner. I had a catering business called Rennes Chef Catering when I lived in Sacramento and worked through the Bay Area. I was charging $150 a person in the 80s. But I made sure that they had perceived value for the food. I want to encourage each and every one of you to pursue your goals as you go forward. Uh, take pride in who you are and what you do. God bless you. Thank you, Joe. That was great. Uh, Anisha, go ahead. You know, one thing that I carry with myself is that uh, the community we build amongst ourselves um, to support each other and our work, um, our efforts um, is something that has become the most important to me. And, um, you know, I try to be present um, to folks that I can help and lend my support where possible. I'm really appreciative of all the people who did that for me. Platforms like this uh, are extremely important for us to share our experiences and um, to really find solutions within each other uh, to the challenges we face. So thank you for being a part of that solution uh, that I know we are creating within our community. And, um, and I look forward to future conversations. You know, Anisha, that is one of the sexiest parts of this moment to me, because I've met in the last four months more black people in food that I didn't know. Part of it's I'm in a book that, that has fostered some of it and having conversations where I had a few people I talked to previously, particularly when I was active, but 
it's so often when you're a chef or somehow a consultant, whatever you're doing, that you get in your own world. You may go to culinary school and you're with a bunch of people. You may make friends. But, you know, I'll never forget I worked for a four-star French chef, and he was always on the phone all day during prep. And I realized some of the other cooks didn't like it. But I said, he needs his peers. Whatever we think about his relationship to us, we're not his peers. And if you listen to him, yeah, he talked about girls, if you understood French. But he also talked about prices. He talked about what they're putting on their plates, uh, where they were getting their plates. He needed to have that dialogue. And he understood, I'm, I'm chained in my restaurant. This is a very small restaurant. I can't get out and circulate. This is how I can do it. I can turn vegetables. I can cure the meats or whatever. But I can also talk to my friends. And I think that the more we're better able to maintain and enhance and develop these bridges, the better we are as individuals and as a collective and becoming less invisible to the people who are not willing to do the work and asking them or forcing them to do the work. Ashley, go ahead. I, I do feel like these conversations are, are not just important, but incredibly necessary um, for our survival in the industry. Um, even just hearing feedback from um, peers like Omar and, and seeing his self-expression self and everything that he's doing with Honeysuckle is incredibly important. And, you know, just kind of like I said before, that mentorship, like Joe said, you know, you're, you have the title chef, but, you know, what do the P&L statements look like? How's your food costs um, and, and your labor costs? Having that well to draw from is so important. And, and that sense of transparency Transparency, I think, is what is going to um, break down a lot of those barriers that we experience for ourselves in this industry and allow us to position ourselves not just as uh, chefs, but um, as the leaders that are going to pioneer kind of dismantling some of these systems that have held us back for so long. Omar, you don't have to, but do you have anything you'd like to say? Uh, absolutely. I mean, thank, thank all of you for your time. Um, thank you, Scott. Um, for pulling us all together, um, this is probably I've done I've done a lot of these. It's just probably one of the more special ones, in, in that I feel like um, all of us sound sound very aware of of where where we are career wise, socially, um, but none of us sound afraid. Um, we all sound affirmed, and I, I really love that about this conversation. I, I think that we are living in a very interesting moment as chefs, as chefs of color, as Black chefs, because I, I think that um, more more than just cooking food and, and putting food on plates and trying to open restaurants or try to survive through restaurants, we're also just inherently political by our mere existence. And um, every every single thing that we say or do or cook or not cook um is activated in a way um as as activism whether we want it to be or not um and i find that conversations like this um kind of kind of going back to what you were saying scott about you know the french chef being on his phone comparing prices and stuff like that or or just you know shooting the shit with with up here um we're on we're on our phones now not just talking about prices and food and stuff but we're also talking about we're also checking in you know, we're also um, asking each other how, how we're doing with with all the things that are going on in the world around us and how how we're finding ourselves represented in it as practitioners of this craft. So um, I'm just very thankful and, and hopeful um, 
And also, I don't know what it's going to look like on the other side because we're currently rebuilding and reforming and reshaping um, what this industry is going to look like. And, um, honeysuckle being a big, a big part of that. Um, <laughs> it, it's just I, I'm, I'm very, very uh, optimistic for us as a culture, um, as, as being leaders of what um, food culture will be uh, in a more recognizable way. Hello again, this is Scott Elvis Barton. I want to welcome you to our next conversation with two chefs who are also farmers, Johnny Rhodes and Adrian Lipscomb. Give a listen. Recently in my own work, I've been considering the role of the environment and farming within the arc of the African diaspora and the quixotic relationship we have to land, the forced removals from our homelands, being enslaved in foreign geographies, lynched on the land, at earlier times in American history, potentially being cash and educationally poor, if potentially land rich as tenant farmers and occasionally landowners. Given this broad and disjointed and dysfunctional history of being in, on, or in relation to the land, there's a renaissance of some African-Americans, young, middle-aged, and older, going back to the land, returning to places potentially in the South and the Midwest. And for that reason, I wanted to talk to two people, Adrian and Johnny, to see what is your relationship to the land? Do you have a history that's familial? What brings you both to the land? My family is from Texas. I'm originally from San Antonio, and my family is mainly Central Texas and also in Corpus. So uh, my great-grandfather owns a lot of land, um, and he also dealt with in construction. So we were always a part of the land, always um, been part of the garden and farming and, um, you know, our hands in the dirt. Um, growing up, my when my mom um, remarried, uh, we were naval. We were in the military, so I was always on the coastline. So I went through a lot of uh, different storms. And one reason that really I got into architecture and city planning was just due to the devastation and the resiliency of trying to come back to the land and rebuild on the land. Um, so a lot of my work and my thesis was on resiliency of rebuilding, especially in um, communities of color. And that's what led me into looking more at the city and the reflection of how um, communities of color were being, you know, they didn't have the diversity, nor were they equitable on how they were rebuilding after devastation, like uh, what happened in Galveston and Hurricane Ike and Katrina and so on and so on. So I've always been, you know, destined to be and work with the land. Tell me, Johnny, is it right? Do you have a prior experience gardening or did I hear that you'd worked in farming or a fruit orchard, something like that, outside of being a chef and having been trained in professional kitchens. Yeah, figs, peach, peaches, and other stone fruit, apricots, apples. Yeah, we, we grew quite a bit. We grew okra and other vegetables as well, though. And so when you start your own farm, will it be produce and animals? What's What do you, what do you intend? 
I intend on produce and animals. Like right now, we're starting. We're gonna we're gonna use one acre to grow strictly fruits and vegetables, uh, and then we have another two acres dedicated towards fruit, like strictly fruit, uh, tree fruit. We use another acre and a half for animals. How are you imagining your customer? in that neighborhood and what you can bring to them and what you have, to, the way you have to grow it so it's affordable for them. The concept of the grocery store is a little different than a lot. Uh, it's not just the fresh products that we're gonna be selling in the grocery store. A lot of times people think grocery stores have a, have a short shelf life, uh, but it's all about sustainability, taking those products that may have a short shelf life and repurposing them into other things like preserves and things like such. Uh, and that's where the culture comes in, is the survival of agricultural oppression and food apartheid. We we made preserves out of different things and out of different products, homesteading, you know, canning, all those different things were things that we did to survive that were very much a part of soul food. And we want to use that same process in our grocery store, but we also control the supply chain. Uh, we grow it, we process it, we package it, and we sell it. And we can do that without the involvement of anybody else. That model you're talking about really matches the original grocery stores, particularly in black neighborhoods in the Great Migration in Chicago, Detroit, etc., where to give a taste of home, they did just what you're talking about. And ultimately, the, the demise of those places, they were small family businesses and the grocery chains that developed at the same time took over. It's a much more complex story and it has a lot of other moving parts. But what made those places initially successful in the Midwestern and, nor and Northeastern cities was that they were bringing produce or prepared products that were, whether you say scuppernogs or okra, that people who came from Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas, etc., were used to and it, as you're saying, curing, uh, preserving so that it was available and that gave them a client base and people who really couldn't afford to go back home, but once or twice a year in those early years of the great migration, this gave them a sense of home. So it's real interesting to hear you talk about it. Now, Adrian, how about you? Your project sounds like a, a little bit bigger landmass than his. And what do you want to grow on it? And how are you going to use the output of it? When this idea came up and it was, you know, 40 acres, you know, I romantically thought 40 whole acres, um, you know, because we're talking about preserving the legacy of Black agriculture and Black foodways. And then when you start looking at the maps and the location of where Black farmers are, they're not in the Midwest. They used to be, but they're they're not in the Midwest. They're preferably they're all in the South, and especially a large amount are in Texas. With talking to people, you start thinking, well, maybe they're different land masses located throughout the United States. We're doing a lot of looking to where this could be, especially in the area that I am. And you know, we have winter, so those things really do take an effect when you talk about agriculture and where and what you want to grow and how much of the season you'll have. So, you know, thinking about splitting up the 40 acres or, you know, crossing of fingers, you know, you get more than 40 acres just dependent might seem more desirable 
But um, in the area I am located out, it is majority organic. And there are rules and regulations, especially starting out that the land has to be organic or recorded as organic for a period of time before you can even try to get it licensed as organic. But on the lands, you know, we seek to provide one to my restaurant, but hopefully to others, but also grow those products and talk about Black seed exchange and talk about preserving our history, uh, traditional methods of our of our Black agriculture, how we how we do grow, but how we did grow in history. Um, also, in the aspects we're talking to people in Africa. Um, about their growth and how that traditional method has spawned some of the things we do here in the United States. Um, but, you know, grow things that we usually or we've lost over time uh, through our agriculture that has, you know, become a little bit homogeneous when you go into a grocery store and you only see two types of tomatoes, four different apples, you know, um, and, you know, one type of lettuce or two types of lettuce. But also, as Johnny was saying, uh, the preservation of extending long, you know, longevity of our products and, and what we did in our culture. And, you know, like I said, up here, since we do get cold, fermenting, preserving, drying our methods and traditions that we do still use and that we do take advantage of, especially within the season. Again, I go back to Johnny, you know, cutting out that middleman and trying to diversify the service that you're providing all the way from the ground to the, t to the plate that your hand goes through the complete system is something that you don't usually see. Um, especially um, in the systems that we have today, we a lot of us don't know our, our chef wise may know their distributor, but they don't know where the distributor gets their food from, from a farm, from a commercial farm, from an organic farm, you know, and I think it's part as a chef, it is our responsibility to kind of streamline the system and understand how our food and where our food is specifically grown and then how it does get to the table. And there are some of us that are, really honing into wanting to streamline that process that we are part of that or we are doing it. When you say black seed, who do you trade with to get things or do you then adapt seed that might be coming from West Africa to be able to tolerate the Wisconsin winter. I think it's kind of unique when you say black seed exchange because um, we look at the seed exchanges and holding of seeds, but there are a lot of, especially traditionally within black agriculture, of seed holding and being able to preserve these certain heirloom um, vegetables and fruits that um, they have been, you know, especially black agricultural farmers have been holding on to are. Uh, reproducing every year because they know that strand they've they've cultivated that strand for decades you know this is an opportunity to also be able to hold that history or also do some exchanging on the standpoint of understanding what these seeds are uh to black farmers and when you look at here in, in wisconsin um we we do have a lot of different types of opportunities of 
of growing, especially in the area that I'm in. Um, the land is very fertile and it would be unique to kind of see what we can grow. Like I said, um, the market has become very homogeneous uh, with products of food products, but, you know, culturally wise, um, there's a huge loss um, of what's being grown even up here and even throughout the United States of uh, black traditional cultural food. Um, we just got really commercialized on liking certain products and certain vegetables and fruits that this is an opportunity to spread our knowledge and our understanding of our culture and our food of what we used to eat. Now, Johnny, just building off what she said, I'm guessing that in the Houston area, you have a greater proportion of black farmers than she would in Wisconsin. Do you have a relationship with other black folks that are farming? I've actually had a hard time finding black farmers here. Not very many of us own land, and those of us do, uh, we're not using it for agricultural purposes in that regard. But I do know one or two like black ranchers they raise cattle, uh, but black farmers per se, where you're where they're focusing on fruits and vegetables and such, I, I I can't really think of any to be honest. There's a now there is a <laughs> as terrible as this may sound, uh, there is a place called Planet Forward, uh, and they basically hire refugee Africans to grow food there. It's basically like sharecropping, essentially. And those are the only black farmers that I know. I just opened the Black Farmer Index and I see a few in Houston and Commerce and Merlins and Wilmer and Kaufman. Not a lot of black farmers, but some. Um, I'll send you the link and you can see if it works for you. I've read that you have a motto of doing the best for less, which I love. And you've talked a little bit about how you're going to develop your business, which makes sense. Do you, either of you see problems in working, even if you're going to produce yourself, you may need part of the infrastructure, the food chain. And I'm sort of thinking about that TV show that Ava DuVernay made, Queen Sugar, where the family gets to a point where they can't process their sugar cane because it's white ownership who runs all the processing and it becomes a big challenge in one of the seasons of that within what you're trying to do, maybe it's commercial canning. I don't know what it could be, but that you might need uh, commercial equipment that's too expensive to purchase, but you would use somebody else or rent space. Like I know when I've worked in Mexico, you can get corn made into masa or uh, mole made on a commercial level at these uh, community stores. Do you either of you foresee aspects of your own unique food chain that you won't be able to do on your own and you need to get outside help and is that going to be a challenge um i mean it's been it's been a lot of different great things that's, that's happened we wouldn't do the open grocery store until maybe this time next year let alone acquire the land and having to do it pretty rapidly pretty quickly to, to create some type of long stuff, long-term security, not for only for us personally, uh, but for business-wise as well. Uh, there's not very many restaurants that you have that stay open for 50 years, but there are grocery stores and farms that have been open for that long and 
much longer. And having a family that's creating that type of uh, lineage and that type of legacy for a family, my family is incredible. Uh, but then also to be able to double down on that and create that kind of lineage and opportunity for the community makes it a little bit more important as well. Even if you are making a quote unquote closed system in your own food chain and doing all the process, you have to get community support, not just from the neighborhood you're in that somebody's going to come into your bakery or come into Broham, but maybe the town council, maybe city, state or, or federal government. And so I'm curious how you both have harnessed community or had to work with community that might be a non-governmental organization or it could be town council or it could be your local neighborhood neighbors. Where has that been helpful, a challenge, if at all? Man, that's a that's a very broad and deep topic on so many different fronts. Uh, community is definitely for where I am. It's definitely very difficult. My my restaurant, my business is in one of the highest poverty stricken areas in the city. So that there's a very deep pocket of institutionalism that comes along with you know with the experience. To where people or children that are um, that are teenagers have never seen a fresh fruit that wasn't a, a, like a fresh fruit, like freshly picked. You know, they never see a fresh peach in their entire life, and they're ten years old. You know, or they're thirteen, and the only fruit that they've ever had outside of oranges, apples, and watermelon, they couldn't tell you what it actually tasted like outside of a can. So introducing those things are difficult because some people are turned off by them, you know, or they're afraid of them. And when I say they're afraid of them, they feel like because they see white people and other people of ethnic groups coming and getting those things, they feel as if those things aren't for them. And it's, and it's kind of difficult to, to manage that because then it comes from a standpoint of, when we do it for free, our people will come very quickly because it's for free and they're willing to be more open to those items. Um, but then when we have those items for sale, people in our you know, immediate community sometimes aren't so quick to, uh, to, to be consumers. They'll go next door and go to the liquor store or go to the convenience store and buy those items, even if the quality items that we have are of an affordable price. Uh, but we still do get a lot of support from the middle class and the upper class black community. The hard part is breaking the institutionalism and the idea that it isn't for us or that that's not what we should put our finances towards. I understand that's a very complex equation. So I'm just going to throw one other thing at you, Johnny. I've heard Adrian speak before and say that she learned a lot from her elders and her her family, blood kin, and but kind of orally, the way most of us learn how to cook, you watch somebody, you cook with them. And when it's not really working out, her elders will say, well, you need to come back home because you forgot how to do it and you need to watch me again. And so I'm just thinking, hearing you say what you just said, if you were to reach out to the generation that would, I guess, be your grandparents, if they're still alive and for the respective neighbors, would those people 
have more of a relationship to some of the things you want to grow because they are that transition from more processed foods, but they may have grown up eating fresh food. You follow me? Oh, yeah, I'm definitely tracking with you. And uh, I agree with you 100% that that should would be the case, and it is for many of uh, the, the people that live in the middle, that, the middle class that support us. Uh, but in this time of COVID, it is more difficult to get that particular demographic to come out of grocery shopping, right? That's that's a very important demographic for grocery shopping. Is uh, it is the is the elderly class, uh, the elderly class of people that eat more clean and more kosher, and them not willing, being willing to or able to step into grocery stores makes grocery stores a little more vulnerable. It seems to me that with both of you, education is going to be key. And I know, I don't know if you have it there, but I used to, uh, when I ran restaurants, and even when I first started uh, teaching, I used to be involved with the um, AIWF, the American Institute of Wine and Food. They have a program that's national called Days of Taste. Check it out if it's in your area, because you could look them up online. And obviously, again, it's got COVID is a limiter. I'm not denying that. But what's interesting about it is it's for fourth and fifth grade kids. And it's about teaching them where their food comes from. And they have, they, what they do is you sign up as a chef or a farmer and around harvest. So in New York area, it would be September, October, over the course of four to six weeks, somebody goes into the classroom and teaches them how to taste. And bring and in my situation, we used to also take them to a farmer's market one week and introduce them to foods and then talk about tasting them. And of course, there's a little bit of daring. But because that age, fourth and fifth grade, is when you imprint knowledge that will generally carry you through your life, they're exposed to a lot of new ideas. And always, when I did it for about 10 years, it would go home with them. Because they would say, mommy, I just tasted fill in the blank. And it then their family got interested in it. And so it might be, you know, it, it's another thing to do, I realize. But it might be a way that helps you to access community. Because I know when I used to do it, and a lot of the other Latin and black chefs in New York, we would do it where, close to where we, you could do it near where you work or where you live. And they asked us often to do it where we lived because those were schools that were underserved. So if the program is existent in Houston, they may actually want somebody to do it in Trinity Gardens so those kids get exposed. So it might be something to think about. Now, Adrian, are you familiar with this at all? So I've always been very supportive of educational learning about agriculture and gardening. Um, I used to do it in Austin um, through the church system and after school programs at the church and work with them in the gardens and, and especially with the kids and understanding how food grows, where it comes from, how the dirt, how the bugs, how the water all affects, you know, the growth system of what we decide to grow in a garden, you know, you're making it unique and growing salsa gardens or Italian gardens. And then at the end of harvest, we celebrate by making things and bringing their parents in and giving seeds to the kids. So they'll be able to do this next time with their parents. And 
they're, you know, they get really excited to be able to show their parents, like, look, I grew this, look, we're eating what I grew, um, and that we can do this too. So I, I believe, especially with the 40 Acres Project, that uh, education is key, but also understanding and storytelling from our elders and creating that legacy that will be able to continue on. I think it's, it is important across the board is the knowledge and the education, not just of the youth, but of our chefs and understanding how our food is developed and how it is grown. And then um, also the key of connecting with the farmer, chef to the farmer, and that the farmer understands what we're using it for and how we're growing it. And the farmer gets to taste it. So it's bringing the farmer to the table to have an understanding of what fine dining is and how we decide to serve what they grew for us. Because, you know, in reality, they can't even afford to eat at some of our tables. So, you know, being able to make that connection closer, uh, you know, bringing the farmer to the table um, gives you a, a higher sense of understanding your food. And, and as a chef, it gives us a higher appreciation of where our food comes from. And so I think it is uh, and it should be a full circle of understanding and appreciation from all foregrounds of of where and what our food and how our food connects us on a daily basis. Many years ago, when I first met Ryan Terry, in, uh, who's in California, as that vegan cooking, and I asked him a similar question for a different purpose. And he said the way he got over, quote unquote, is every time a Barnes and Noble or a college wanted to have him talk about his cookbooks and vegan cooking, he would find black churches in the community through the church, you know, getting people where they live, literally, figuratively, as Adrian just said, he was able to have people who wouldn't normally come to look for a vegan cookbook or think about cooking vegan, but had been told by a doctor or a health practitioner that they needed to change their diet, and he was right there to deliver. I often think that there might be some things that are simple preparations that might endear you to your client base, or having somebody like your grandparents or your godparents talk about it. So, because I, I know, you know, for good or for bad, Sometimes if we see and hear a voice and face that looks like us, we're more willing to think about it. And it's not you directly trying to sell it to them. How are you documenting? You know, obviously you have record books, you're paying out, you know, you know all that kind of stuff. But how are you documenting these hybrid projects? I mean, for me, I do a lot of writing. Uh, I like drawing maps. So I kind of map, I kind of map things out. Uh, I like to be very strategic and organized, so just I just draw a lot of different maps, and I just I draw a different map after you know after every accomplishment or every goal that's met, just because things change so often so quickly. Um, so just drawing for me, drawing maps continuously. Helps. How about you, Adrian? Do you, how do you document your work? Kind of on the same level. Um, I I am very well known for keeping like moleskin notebooks. Uh, for for writing and mapping also I um, with my background in architecture so sketching and um, laying out strategically what I want to do 
and and try to get there organically it does change so a lot of trace paper involved of different things changing and um uh and it also just you know historically just writing it down you you see a lot of this information um you know in my social media and that type of aspects a lot of photography work uh for photographing what i'm doing who i'm talking to um, strategically trying to stay connected uh, to a lot of people um, in the standpoint. So as we are, are all making this history, um, that it can be replicated. Yeah, that's key because I'm really entranced by your stories of oral history with your family. And there's a beauty to orality, but it also means that it can be hierarchical. It, the information can be privileged. It can be not, it can be held back or as we've just seen with COVID, we lose people and they're the, the center of knowledge for a community. So I, I love that you're both doing that. So now both of you have done, whether it's this uh, business model or not, something along the lines of GoFundMe. How has that been productive? Obviously it's, it's a means to an end. You're trying to raise a hundred or $200,000 or what have you. I'm guessing, and you're going to both tell me, that part of the money is to maybe buy land or buy the tools to work the land, but it may not be operating expenses once that's done. I know that with people I know who have done these kinds of GoFundMe, they also function as de facto marketing because suddenly more people know about you. Income generating strategies that we now see commonly how have they worked for you and how, how have they been a challenge? Well, you know, originally I didn't want to do a GoFundMe. Um, it was not one of the things I thought I would ever do in my lifetime. Um, in fact, I was pretty much against it. Um, but when I decided to do this project and I mean, I was solidly in a tunnel of like knowing the end product and where and how I was going to get there. I put up a GoFundMe um, and we launched it within 24 hours and I was pretty overwhelmed with the amount of support I was getting, um, you know, from people all across the nation, not just in my area and within my community. Um, and then when, you know, companies started stepping up and donating towards this, I really started to be humbled because of this, the sustainability factor that they thought that this, they knew that this was missing. They knew that there was, there was a gap that needed to be filled. And this was an opportunity and one in believing in me that this would be able to be done. Um, you know, and being really honest and, you know, upfront, I mean, the amount of money I asked for is nowhere near the number that you need to operate a, a, a farm, 40 acres or five acres. You know, um, I've changed my amount. This I've only changed my amount once. We hit um, our 100,000 goal within a month and two days. And, um, you know, and then I, when I sat down and strategically thought, like, what's next? Um, I said, well, what if we raise the goal? And what do you raise the goal to? And, you know, when you look at the price of land, it's expensive. I mean, it's expensive where I am. And um, it 
and for 40 acres, it's very expensive. So you start thinking of when you're laying your plan out, you know, and if you know farmers, farmers are entrepreneurs. They have business plans. They understand that this is a process. They're not new to this. There is a strategic way, an economic way that they have to stay functional. They're they're doing something to survive. They're taking risks to survive. And it takes money. There's taxes. There's farm numbers. If you're getting a farm number, there's trying to be organic. All of that adds up before you even put your till to the ground. So, you know, the price tag just fluctuates. Um, and, you know, it went beyond the GoFundMe. Um, I received letters with uh, money in it. I received, um, I received like, you know, a lot of snail mail um, with, I received letters, um, people that just stopped by. Um, I've had a lot of businesses step up and want to donate a percentage of their proceeds towards this. I've had, um, you know, I've done fundraisers like old fashioned barbecue fundraisers. You know, it, it just surprises me, you know, um, that this community, you know, came together for, for this cause, but it's starting to be a larger picture. So there's more people that are wanting to be involved and more people that are wanting to donate. So, um, it, you know, for me, it means it helps me move forward and push forward that I'm not alone in creating this project. Which came first, Adrian, urban planning and architecture or food for you? Food, hands down food. So, Johnny, how about you with your uh, GoFundMe project? I, I definitely didn't raise $100,000. <laughs> that would be, uh, man, that would, that's, that's amazing. Um, yeah, our GoFundMe project is, uh, we kicked it off. Uh, a little over a month ago, I believe, and uh, we raised about seventeen thousand. Um, I actually just used some of that today to be able to put in our water well for our farm, uh, because we have to. We're on our water and septic. We're not on city water because we're not in the city. Uh, so having our own water well and our own septic tanks is something that's extremely important. But outside of that, everything else we've I've, we've done, you know, out of pocket basically from clearing the land to uh to purchasing the land as well and in, in your without divulging all your um, finances the way you set up your go fund me was that to buy the land and turn it over so it could start to bear you know plant or was that also to give you capital to get the business let's say going for a year or something like that. I mean, the GoFundMe was simply is simply to get us uh, to create the, our infrastructure. Uh, it's not to create the business per se, but just to create the infrastructure so that way we can, you know, create our business. Do you want to ask each other something? I'd have to sit here and process it all and really get and really dive into it. But the fact that she has 40 acres, uh, I mean, there's so many questions I have for you that come along with that. And then of course, how you raise a hundred thousand dollars is another unique question I have for you. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean that's just that's crazy, Johnny. I think we, we'll have an offline conversation. What can people like me, who are chefs or in the food world, hospital hospitality, can do to help you? I mean, I I just love learning. Uh, I, I really appreciate learning. Uh, I wish there's this thing called radical exchange, and I love how they how they bring together the hospitality industry, but it, it very much focuses on the beverage community. There isn't a space like that for 
uh, for chefs and for agriculture to coexist and really bounce off of it, bounce off of each other. And for me, what would help me is just being in that room and learning from from the from each other. And if there's a way that we can create something like that uh, nationally or even internationally to where black farmers and black chefs can be in the same space, I think that would be phenomenal. I want to extend a strong thank you and a heartfelt hug to the chefs and chef farmers who participated today. I want to invite you, the listener, to come back because there is another set of conversations to follow. And I hope that for everybody involved, this has been a good opportunity to have an understanding of what it means to be black and professional in food.